What's the one about the guy sitting on the general store step? Well, they're all sitting around and the flatlander asks them uh, why they're uh, so quiet. And uh, one of them says, well, we, we were raised in a culture that said you don't speak unless you think you can improve on the silence. <laughs> Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. What's so funny about Vermont? Vermont cartoonist Jeff Danziger writes in his foreword uh, to a new book that Vermont humor is marked by, quote, a kind of pleasant observational strain, like the farmer who is told that with the Lord's help, he's made a successful farm out of his rocky land. Yes, he says, but you should have seen the place when the Lord was running it by himself. Another exchange captures Vermont humor. When a stranger stops to ask for directions, always a setup for a joke. <laughs> Does it matter which road I take to Goshen? Asks the stranger. Not to me, it don't, says the Vermonter. So the weighty question about, of what's so funny about Vermont is tackled in the new book, I Could Hardly Keep From Laughing, an illustrated collection of Vermont humor. The book is written by retired journalist and teacher Bill Mayers, who's the co-author of an earlier Vermont book of Vermont humor titled Real Men Don't Milk Goats. And it's illustrated by Don Hooper. Both are former legislators, and Hooper is a former Secretary of State. So, Bill Mayers, let me start by asking you, what's funny about Vermont? Oh, gosh. Uh, you really should go to Danziger. Uh, Danziger has a wonderful um, description um, that, that we have used in other places, but I think uh, we've talked about it being wry, dry, um, sometimes you know, not all in, often sly. Where, where's our little, here, here, here we, we go. A, a little piece of doggerel. We got some doggerel. This is, this is just, just right. Some say Vermont humor is awful dry. Others describe it as kind of wry. Sneaky types proclaim it sly. Affix your label, kindly try. It's joyful whimsies, often playful. Snicker, chortle, all your dayful. It's incongruities, a brimming trayful. Laconic Vermonters voice gentle wit. Dirty or nasty? Not one bit. Sick, slick, filthy. Those don't fit. Feast, therefore, on modest deadpan. Troll this droll as best you can. So we were trying to summarize what it was that, uh, uh, and we also made a list of, of a long, longish list of what it's not. It's not. Uh, this is Don Hooper, by the way, speaking. Thank you. Um, anyway, uh, it's a little bit hard to capture. And in fact, in uh, Danziger's introduction, he says, you kind of have to be there. You kind of, it sort of represents Vermont, even, even when people aren't saying anything. And even when there's not a setup joke, there's a sort of sense of humor about it. And it's a calming thing, but it's not, uh, it's not grandstandy. It's not slapsticky, mostly. Uh, there are exceptions to all these rules, but uh, there's a dryness, a wonderful sardonic uh, that goes with laconic, uh, you know, a sort of not, not especially active, an inactive kind of contemplative. What's the one about the guy sitting on the on the general store step, Billy? That, yeah. 
when he's <laughs> that Foley uh, cites. Oh well, they're all sitting around, and the Flatlander asks them uh, why they're uh, so um, quiet. And uh, one of them says, "Well, we we were raised in a culture that said you don't speak unless you think you can improve on the silence." Um, and <laughs> so yeah, well, but he's a little. He gets a little miffed. He says, "Is there a law against against talking in this town?" You know, he's trying to engage him on the stoop, and it, it happened to be it wasn't a flatlander in this case. It was that great old uh, collector of Vermont humor, Alan Foley. Alan Foley, and Bill does a spectacular job in this book, if I might uh, comment, in assembling where Vermont humor came from, how it, he tracks it over the ages. Tell some of the chapter types. Well, I could go back to the, the, the title of the book is, is a oh, yeah. apocryphal story about Mark Twain, but it fits just like hand and glove. And uh, he apparently was invited to speak in Brattleboro in the last, well, 1890s. And he got up in this uh, audience and he gave us what he thought was a stem winder. In the Latches Theater, probably. Well, maybe before that, somewhere else. Uh -huh. Anyway, he thought he was the funniest thing since sliced bread. And he had, um, but nobody said anything. They didn't even smile. They didn't even <laughs> wink. They didn't even chortle. And finally, he was so annoyed that he, he stopped his speech and went around to the front of the building and Wanted to see what people would say. say he snuck out the back door and went around to the front of the building. Went on the front door to listen to the what people would say as they left, probably in in high dudgeon. And uh, and he saw this guy putting his wife into the carriage, and he overheard him say, "Funny, funny." Well, that guy was so funny I could hardly keep from laughing. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's minimal. That's Vermont minimalist humor. Um, <laughs> so, so talk about, uh, you know, Danziger, uh, who has also been a guest on this show, um, he talks about Yankiness is kind of essential to Vermont humor. What is that in your mind? What is the essence of Yankiness? Hoops. Oh, you answer that. Don one. Hooper. That's really, that's really nice. Oh, Jesus. Uh, I don't know. I think it's this laconic reserve that uh, you uh, not a lot of grandstanding going on. There's a lot of uh, enjoyment, comfort in this uh, working rural landscape. You know, the Doug Knapp uh, imagery where he's got a cow standing in a field and uh, and the caption on the on his little eight by ten uh, cartoon is. Um, Vermont's really boring, the Holstein is saying. <laughs> and that's the way we like it. There's a sort of uh, a, a placid, uh, you know, it's not New York-y. It's, it's really not flashy and, uh, and wild. That's my belief anyway. Here, here's what Danziger writes. He says, he talks about the attribute called Yankiness spread across the Northern New England states combining undemonstrative passions, studied understatement, and a reverence for patient consideration. The Texan brags that he has so much land that he can get in his car and drive half a day without getting off his land. The Vermont farmer pauses and reflects that he used to have a car like that. 
Um, oh yeah, I get at least a B plus for that answer. I mean, I I said that, but in in simpler words, and dancing. Well, with a little grave in inflation and a steep curve, yeah, we could get it up to a B plus. <laughs> um, well, now, I think I I grew up in Texas, where you know, which is a land of bloviators, uh, par excellence, and everything is bigger in Texas, and and um, I mean. My my favorite Texas joke is you wouldn't hear a Vermonter say this. Oh man, I don't know that 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 old boy is so dumb. If brains were gasoline, he wouldn't have enough to drive an ant's motorcycle around a BB. Uh, so 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 the 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 opposite is is selling the truck in in vastly fewer many fewer words, um, and um, so I don't know it. it well, let me ask you, um, you try to do something serious in this humorous book, which is tell a little bit of the history of Vermont humor, which in itself is kind of funny to think that humor has history. Mostly, most of us think of it as a joke works or doesn't work. If it falls flat, it's no good. But um, Bill, let me ask you, what led you to want to tell the history of humor and talk about how it's evolved? Well, I think if, if there's one uh, author uh, that that we uh, quote in here, uh, he's also he's the most mysterious. It's a man named Robert Davis, um, whom I have not been able to track down. He wrote a book um, uh, at some indeterminate period in the early part of the 19th of the 20th century. No date, no place of um, publication, no copyright. Um, and but this book was an, an analysis of his father's generation of jokes. Um, and um, Don's going to find the relevant passage. But it, it was what we've been talking about, this idea of farmers. Certain farmers had very regular and not terribly demanding, intellectually demanding um, activities, plowing a field. Well, he says, well, for some people, they, they really needed to keep their minds working. They needed to keep them sharp. And so by going, refining jokes to a hard point and getting ideas like he had quick breakers or long breakers, and they would, and so you'd try to go to one end of the row, shave off another syllable. Go to the next, the end of the row going back the other way, shave off another syllable. Now, Billy, you're talking about at that time, he says a farmer would wake up in the morning and there are about 100 jokes in circulation and he'd whittle the darn thing into shape. And by the time uh, he went home at night to summer, uh, you couldn't recognize the joke. So Davis's humor learned from his fa farmer father was based on two incompatible ideas, a, a sort of shock to the system, a bounce in the brain that is pleasurable and in different measure, Jokes which relied on surprise, incongruity, and a lightning speed. The climax had to be whittled sharp. Yeah. So you've got got a couple of those about uh, um, about the woman goes in to ask uh, the newspaper uh, <laughs> about writing up an obit, and uh, she says, "How much does an obituary cost?" And, and the newspaper editor says, "50 cents an inch." And she replies, oh, we couldn't afford that. Father was six feet two. 
I'm looking at uh, what the wife says to the druggist when she goes in. Um, should I read that or you do you remember? Oh, go that? ahead. No, David, this is a conversation. He says, uh, she says at the druggist, a wife speaks, quote, you write the directions plain on the bottles. What's for my <laughs> husband and what's for the horse? I can't have anything happen to that horse before the spring planting's done. Now, that's the essence of Vermont humor. Well, and there, there's another apocryphal story I, I, I would love to believe that on the on a druggist uh, window in Montpelier was the sign uh, cigars. No, no. Hams and cigars smoked and unsmoked. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, there's a there's an old Vermont joke that it took me years to actually even smile about. The, the grandchild says to his grandma. He says, Grandma, you think it's going to rain? And she says, well, be a long dry spell if it don't. <laughs> now, you've got to really be into Vermont humor to even chortle over that. But I, after a long time, I finally said, I succumbed. I said, yes, that is, that is a genuinely funny Thing. So the grandma knows the, the, the missing word that the grandchild has left out. That is, he, he meant to say, do you think it's going to rain this afternoon or today? And she doesn't, she doesn't put the word in there, but she says, yeah, it's going to rain sometime. Well, so just as humor moves on from just farm humor, so too does Vermont move on from being a largely, you know, agricultural state to start to include some other colorful characters. Um, uh, take us through uh, Vermont's humor as it evolves with the people who start to settle here. Uh, either one of you. Well, that's, you. Why, that's why we, at one point we were going to call us a history of Vermont humor, but we decided that was too pretentious. But we did try to have some kind of um, chronological um, framework for this. So the first chapter is called the farmer. The next chapter is came to play, meaning this, these are the people who in the twenties and thirties would come and stay for the summer, but then go away. And then, um, and then we had came to stay and that included all of us, <laughs> all of us anyway, uh, people who, who decided that we would come in. And that's, that's what Frank Bryan and I were so lucky to tap into was this, moment in time when the Flatlanders really were becoming the dominant uh, force in, in the state of Vermont. So that, but that gave us all kinds of ways of contrasting the two. In, in, in current parlance, we would call us the, uh, the dominant mutation, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, David, we, you know, we've got these five seasons, uh, the four obvious ones and then mud season. And as time went on, we sort of tried to capitalize on each of them. But in the, in the came to play era, uh, Danziger ca captures it the best in his Teed series in the Times Argus Rutland Herald, uh, where he's got somebody at Floyd's general store and the guy comes in and he says, um, do, you, uh, uh, do you have tofu? And uh, Floyd says, no, but we got Dr. Scholes. <laughs> <And> <laughs> then another tourist comes by and says, 
uh, has uh, peak foliage happened yet? And uh, of course, the storekeeper says, yeah, and through about 15 minutes ago. He points down the road. And I think the the name of the store was Floyd's General Inconvenience Store. (laughs) Don't say that. Don't tell Al. He'll be offended. Now, we haven't had a chance in any public uh, uh, discourse to uh, bring up these. But I wanted to read in in this era of COVID uh, two limericks that were uh, written in uh, 1919, one in the St. Albans Messenger and one in the Brattleboro Reformer. Okay. And this is, of course, at the height of the Spanish flu. Spanish flu, right, in which over 1,700 Vermonters died. A A fly and a flea with the flu were quarantined, so what could they do? Said the fly, let us flee. Said the flea, let us fly. So they flew through a flaw in the flu. And and here's the limerick from the reformer. The fly and the flea with the flu. Flew through the flu, it is true. But a flaw in the flu with a chill turned them blue. And the fly and the flea, they are through. (laughs) Well, I guess if it didn't involve fleas and flies, we could call it gallows humor, but there wouldn't be gallows wouldn't be too effective with fleas and flies, I guess. No, but David, you bring up a a good point uh, that um, somebody, a a reviewer recently, by the way, the reviews are coming in. They're great. They they say this book ain't half bad. We can't tell which half, though. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, one reviewer for the uh, White River uh, Valley News. I mean, for the Valley News, um, uh, really cited Bill's uh, excellence in in going back and citing all the Vermont humorists and the evolution of it, and and so on. But I don't think he he didn't have much to say about my drawings, uh, and in fact, he sort of. Uh, put in a complimentary barb at the end. He said, well, Hooper has been given a chapter of his own and he spent at the end and he spends all his time wailing about climate change, uh, which in fact I did. And it goes to, well, why did we do this book anyway? And some of it has to do with the stress, stressful period that we're in right now uh, with the, the uh, pandemic and, and certainly the, the uh, loom of climate change, which we haven't figured out how to deal with. And so Vermont humor does deal with deadly serious subjects a lot, uh, but makes them more approachable, more acceptable to people working on solutions or whatever. If you can just find a little bit of 90 degree humor in there. I mean that that's well, you got you, is this a setup for a climate change joke Don you got you got one up your sleeve climate change book is coming wait oh, just man. wait Jeez. okay well, I don't know I close with the with a polar bear on the psychiatrist's couch and the, the psychiatrist <laughs> who happens to be a Holstein cow this is him he says and so he's asking the polar bear he says so you think uh, the climate crisis is a bad thing <laughs> That's sort of Vermont humor, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I, uh, for sure, the Holstein would be the therapist in any of these cartoons. (laughs) And it could, you could interchange the polar bear for, you know, a 
New York second homeowner or whatever, it would, it would still be the same advice and it would be delivered by a Holstein. Yeah. So we, we interrupted you about 10 minutes ago. Uh, you not really. I had nothing important to say, but neither do you. So that makes this a perfectly <laughs> balanced conversation. Well, now, wait a minute. Now, the town country person's going by the farmer and the farmer's got, he's, he's, embraced his biggest sow. He's got a he hoisted up into the apple tree. He's lifting this tremendous sow and the sow is eating the apples off the branch. And the down country, the flatlander says, hey, Mr. Farmer, don't you think it would be more efficient? Don't you think it would be, uh, it would save you some time if you just shook the tree, let the apples fall to the ground and let the, cow, let the pig eat them off the ground. And of course, the laconic, sardonic Vermont farmer turns to him and he says, what's time to a pig? <laughs> Pretty good. He's got all the time in the world. <laughs> so, so, Bill, you, you kind of originally conceived of this book and you were going to write some of the words and then you were going to find somebody to illustrate it. And what better place to do that in Vermont? You have... MacArthur genius, Alison Bechdel, you have New Yorker cartoonist, Ed Corrin, you've got uh, Danziger. How'd you settle on Don Hooper as your illustrator? It's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, both jokingly and seriously. I mean, we couldn't afford those people. If we were going to have real whole bunch of cartoons by Allison or Ed or, or Danziger, it'd break our bank. I mean, we wouldn't. So, so we said, Look, let's and Don wrote a very generous um, thank you to them, and and said we we're going to go with uh, the fourth team, but uh, at least it'll be the fourth team. And yeah, we definitely and, didn't want to show off the competition. We dev, we didn't want Hooper. Well, but but let me just be serious for just a minute because because David, it I've written books with so oh, maybe seven or eight people, and I. I, the, Don was one of the top, one of the top two. Is and, that was that also your pitch to your wife that she was one of the top one or two at the I, end of? I'm talking about writing books. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Fifty years, fifty years. My wife is married beneath. She's, her, but, she's still one of the top one or two. Oh yeah, she's the top one. But in any case, but but seriously, um, I it was it was. I think we. I think we meshed very well. I think it was partly uh, we have similar backgrounds. I think we, we've had these shared experience. We've been in Vermont about the same time. And, and there was never any question of me telling him how to draw or really him telling me how to write. And, but we still kept sort of going back and forth with each other, not at each other as it evolved. And so it is a, it's a totally shared um, um, work of art or our, our piece of literature. And I, I'm really happy and we're still friends. Uh, I remember my, my agent one time said, never write a book with somebody. It's worse than a bad marriage. Uh, <laughs> but just not, it's not the case with Hooper. He's been great. Well, thank you. Yeah. We did our dedications at the end of the uh, trek. And uh, I dedicated mine to mayors who was definitely my encourager and mentor in many respects as we went along. And uh, he was a good critic, uh, but not a devastating one. And so we just sort of motored, you know, we got better 
as we as we progressed. And one of the things I didn't learn in this project was how to draw. And it's a good thing uh, because I think the goofiness and the freeness of the cartoons actually makes them pretty attractive. So well, I'm I feeling would, I, I would agree with that. Um, now. I, let's fill people in a little bit on your backgrounds. Um, Bill, give us the 30-second uh, summary of your life. <laughs> okay. I grew up in Texas, went to Harvard, did some Marines, uh, went to graduate school, then became a journalist, worked in newspapers in Illinois and um, Michigan, several other places. We came to Vermont uh, and... Um, started writing books, um, sort of wove in uh, between other things, serving in the legislature, um, teaching high school, and uh, eventually the corpus is a number of books on a whole variety of subjects. And uh, so um, I've been a, a avid, avid amateur all my life. And Don, um, give the short version of your life. Grew up in Connecticut, went to Harvard, went in the Peace Corps in Botswana, Africa during the Vietnam War, which was a very formative, big, big deal experience for me. I came back after three years and got a graduate degree in education and came to Vermont to hire teachers for CCV, the Community College of Vermont, in its infancy. And we didn't hire teachers, actually. I cajoled them into doing their public service at night for free in church basements for students who paid no tuition. That was CCV in the early 70s. And I enjoyed it. And at, at the same time, I was a back to land hippie goat farmer. I had a, a long goat milk route uh, that included the Hunger Mountain Co-op and, and Jenny Callen's uh, Horn of the Moon Cafe and the Dartmouth Co-op. And actually we got the, the fresh goat milk all the way down to Bread and Circus in Boston, which was the predecessor of Whole Foods. And uh, eventually that uh, business morphed into Vermont Creamery, which allowed me to continue to do sort of public service all my life. So I worked for the Vermont Natural Resources Council. Then I was in the legislature for eight years. Then my wife told me I had to get a real job. So I was lucky enough to get uh, hired by the people of the whole state of Vermont to be Secretary of State in the early 90s. And then I went back to the nonprofit world and worked as an organizer for the National Wildlife Federation. Um, Don, you were sharing that you were in the Peace Corps in Botswana uh, and that that was a kind of a, a very formative experience for you. Uh, how did that contribute to what you did after that? Well, David, I, that's a great question from you, who's written, you have written a magnificent book about apartheid South Africa. And at that time, this uh, landlocked country in Southern Africa was surrounded by white ruled apartheid, um, uh, white supremacist uh, countries of Angola and Mozambique and Southwest Africa and so on. And Rhodesia and, uh, and yes. And you wrote, wrote indeed that became uh, Zimbabwe after. Uh, I learned there that if you're uh, poor, it's not necessarily your fault. And there's an awful lot that people of goodwill with a, um, with a work ethic can achieve if they 
are given a chance or given minimal resources at least to uh, try to yeah, try to improve their lives. And uh, so I was embarrassed when our students in a school that we were building uh, ended up being performing at the national average uh, in their, um, in their uh, national tests, which were given by the Cambridge Overseas Examination Board in England. And we were surprised and delighted that our kids who were educated at one half the cost of the other government schools in Botswana did were absolutely at the country's average. And I went to get a chicken from the farm. Uh, the school had a farm and I didn't know how to slaughter it. I didn't even know how to catch, capture that chicken. And so when I got to Vermont a few years later, I said, I'm going to rectify that. And so I started to raise all these back to land animals and uh, that was one of the, the permanent things that kind of landed here. The first year had two goats, one we ate for Thanksgiving and the other for Christmas, fry flies, uh, cooking on a charcoal grill on the bathtub on the, on the right off of the mudroom. And, uh, you know, people say, well, you must have given so much to Botswana. Well, I got so much more than I gave in Botswana, because I brought back this nasty habit of eating delicious goat milk, goat meat. Then that became a fluid milk business. Then that became a cheese company. And when we sold it to Land O'Lakes uh, a few years back, uh, we had more than 100 employees. Land O'Lakes, by the way, has taken that Vermont Creamery and done all the things that they said they would. They increased the, the uh, per hour pay and they'd expand the plant, keep it in Vermont and uh, keep the quality just as good. So that was something that came originally, really, if you take it back to its roots from Botswana, from the Peace Corps. Hmm. And plus, I didn't get to go to Ver Vietnam. Which is, uh, Bill, you mentioned you were in the Marines. And um, since you're uh, of a certain era, were you in Vietnam? No. Because I missed it. I, I missed it at both ends. I, I went in before Vietnam, but I was in the reserves and I only came close when my Texas Reserve unit almost got called up in 65. Um, so I, you can say I was in and I escaped at the same time. Um, and, uh, so, David, do you mind if we reverse that question and ask you, well, what did you get out of your South African experience? I, one of the things, so I uh, was going back and forth to South Africa in the 80s after being an anti-apartheid activist in college. I wanted to see what the South Africa was all about, that we were chanting protest chants about. So I uh, began going there with my then girlfriend, now wife, um, Sue Minter, and we went in the mid 80s at the height of apartheid and really saw you know, an apartheid state, uh, what injustice looked like on a, you know, vast scale. Uh, and then continued going there when Mandela was released from prison. And then I, we moved to South Africa for a year when Mandela was president. So I don't want to divert the conversation too much towards me, but I think one of the big things I got from there is that anything is possible. You know, if you can end injustice on that scale, 
in the way that they did, um, then certainly none of the challenges we face here are insurmountable. So that's as much as I'm going to allow you to hijack this interview, Don. And well, I'm going to turn know, back to Bill. For, okay. for an instant, just put a timeline <laughs> to it. So in 1985, when all that activism was occurring in the U.S. and all those little divestments from at Harvard College and at Madison, Wisconsin, and so on, they all amounted to something. And in 1990, coupled with the worldwide recession, uh, de Klerk, who just died, President de Klerk, had to cash out apartheid because uh, they didn't. They were starved of the money that capital needed to to grow. And then they released. Fortunately, they didn't murder Mandela. Well Don, you you are a great interviewer, and someday you are going to have beyond the sharp no, end of the mic. So I'm going to steer <laughs> it back here to and and I just marvel at this because in the nine or so years I've been doing this, nobody has succeeded in doing what you did, which was to <laughs> grab hold of the mic and turn the interview around. So back to Bill Mayers here. <laughs> So, Bill, when does humor and when do you become so fascinated by humor? And of course, it doesn't escape me that your first blockbuster hit, uh, Real Men Don't Milk Goats, dovetails nicely with the fact that you partnered with the guy who does milk goats. Yes. So, <clears throat> no, I know. And, and, and it is there's something charmingly uh, apposite about about this. And uh, uh, I, I I've never my father was was a great one for aphorisms, and we put two of them in the book. Um, uh, he was a person of few words, but every one of them counted. And he he would say to his sons, three sons, uh, "The steam that toot the toot the whistle never turned a wheel." Uh, <laughs> and and he would define an expert as a person who avoids all the minor errors as he sweeps forward to the grand fallacy. Um, so being a scientist, uh, he got he could get away with it. But I think. You know, I, I I think getting to know Frank Bryan was was the key there because, and I just knew Frank because I'd listened to a few of his lectures at UVM and and um, I'd invited him to a, a book signing for another book I would I had done in the '83, and it was a pretty serious book about uh, workplace democracy and and um, uh, cooperatives and stuff, um, and Frank said, look. Forget about all the serious stuff. It says someone needs to do a book, uh, and the book "Real Men Don't Eat Quiche" had come out about six months before that. And he says, Frank says, and someone's going to do this book about Vermont humor, and it's going to be called. We're going to call it um, "Real Real Vermonters Don't Milk Goats." And I said, Frank, that's a great idea. Now you go home and think of twenty-five one-liners, and I'll go home and think of twenty-five one-liners, and we'll meet at the Oasis Diner. In um, on Monday, and he did, and I did, and we started in six weeks. We wrote this thing, and it it, it has just struck this wonderful uh, chord in the collective um, consciousness of both real Vermonters and 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 we sold forty five thousand copies in four months. Uh, it was just it's just amazing, uh, <laughs> and and then we ended up writing three other books of, but all with a Vermont. Twist a Vermont uh, owner's manual. We wrote uh, we wrote a spoof about Vermont seceding, the Vermont secession book, with Danziger's cartoons, and then we wrote um, 
this is how we got to know uh, Hooper because um, uh, I guess I just started hearing funny stories when I was in the legislature. And so I went back to Frank and said, look, I'll do all the legwork on this and collect the stories. And meanwhile, why don't we get Hooper whose art I had seen and do the illustrations. So he became our, our third partner. And, um, and so this was a building, a building on that, but that was 1981 or so. This is almost 30 years ago. We, I've watched his career brighten and shine ever, ever. Well, I think, Bill, some people would argue with the idea that Don's career has brightened uh, in that time because, you know, his career began as a spectacular shooting star. But, Don, um, you were a one-term secretary of state. <laughs> That's a hard thing to do, I've got to say. <laughs> so tell us, how did you convince the majority of Vermonters to fire you? Oh my God, I, uh, I was not attentive uh, to, I you know, after eight years in the legislature, uh, David, um, I really, I realized I wasn't an incrementalist, which you have to be to uh, serve patiently in the legislature. And I had enjoyed it. In fact, one of the ways that Bill and I got to know each other was the Free Press did a story in 1985 when we were both freshmen on what a wacky group of freshmen there were in the legislature that year. And we wrote to each other across the hall and a page delivered the note. And each of us said, who do you think is gonna amount to anything in this chamber? There were 150 people sitting there and we made our lists. And I decided that day, wow, I'd love to be something that I'd like to be somebody of consequence. And I really wanted always to be Speaker of the House. Uh, but that was not available. And uh, so anyway, eventually I became Secretary of State uh, when the Clinton tsunami occurred in 1992. And, but having been in the legislature where you have to be patient and slow, uh, I was impatient then to get same day voter and absentee ballots without a, an excuse from your uh, mother. Uh, I wanted the town clerk in Stowe not to charge Bernie Sanders a dollar a page for the checklist. That seemed to me crazy. So I had all these reform ideas, and it absolutely horrified and antagonized every constituency you could have out there. I did uh, my deputy, uh, Claudia Bristow, who was magnificent, um, uh, said, no, we're not going to answer the press's call at midnight saying that the Windsor Select Board had gone into executive session once again inappropriately without a vote and so on. She said, no, we're going to wait till the morning and get both sides of that story before we give it. So I was probably tone deaf to uh, the clamoring, to the way things had been done. And everybody said, we got to get rid of this guy. He's way too... Uh, impatient or dramatic or revolutionary or stupid. Uh, so they did. And that uh, occurred in 94 when Newt Gingrich uh, had a tsunami that flipped the U.S. House uh, at that same time. So the, the Clinton tsunami swept you in and the Gingrich tsunami swept you back out to sea. Well, there's a lot of Hooper involved, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to return to the humor 
theme of your book and your illustrations. Um, and one of the things you write about, and, and certainly something that Vermonters always get asked about is the difference between New Hampshire and Vermont. You know, how did these two states live free or die and freedom and unity get joined at the hip uh, with some contorted, you know, sort of mashup of those two uh, state mottos? Um, so, Bill, you want to tell us what's well, the humor me, between? You know, and, I'll give you a little bit. I mean, the history is is fairly, fairly clear is the difference between New Hampshire being in really an industrial society and then the forest of it being an extractive uh, um, uh, economy of, of the mills down in the south and uh, then the forest up in the north. And, and then um, you get uh, a more conservative uh, population. People move from Massachusetts to New Hampshire because they don't want to be taxed in Massachusetts. Then you have the taking the pledge, all the politicians for many years have had to take the pledge. You don't support an income tax, don't support a sales tax. And then the toxic influence of the uh, Manchester Union leader led by William Lowe over probably five decades um, really put the, the uh, would you say, the clamp on, on a lot of liberal uh, instincts and behavior. And meanwhile, in Vermont, you had a much more, um, I think, a thoughtful, generous Republican spirit, uh, even on both sides of the, of the Green Mountains. Um, and uh, we took advantage of this. I mean, so this is the humor or one of the, our favorite pieces in here about um, New Hampshire that is, uh, has never been published before. Uh, you're reading it, hearing it for the first time in this book. And it's written by a guy named John McCullough, who is a grandson or son of a, of a uh, Vermont governor. But this, this guy, John, was from North uh, Bennington. <clears throat> and uh, I'll read it to you. Okay. Okay, this is John McCullough's Ode to New Hampshire. Freewheeling, freewheeling thoughts while following a New Hampshire car down a straight and narrow road being free verse with liberty and license too. Blessings on thee, little state, wearing your patriotism on your license plate. No hard-bitten Yank is supposed to believe in wearing his heart upon his sleeve. Then what sort of faith is this we keep, all sloganized and just tin deep? Live free or die, the tin plate states. Die, free, I, who, he, why, me, me free? Free, for instance, to expurgate or to or otherwise obliterate this Ten Commandment, which this state feels free enough to legislate and put upon the license plate of every free man in the state. The state states, no, I'm not that free. Such freedom is a state offense with time in jail as consequence. And freedom doesn't long prevail in jail. How free then must I try to be, or worse yet, be compelled to be? If I don't try to not comply, then must I die. I cry thy help, O gentle reader. Pray take me to your union leader. Yet, come to think of it, I am free, as free perhaps as man ought be. My patriotism I need not vaunt, unless I want. You see, I'm living in Vermont. <laughs> So, David, the book is filled with um, really uh, magnificent contributions by that was from 
John McCullough, but we've got several pages from Rusty DeWeese, the logger, and Al Bowright, who do, does his uh, mud season opry and uh, groundhog, 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 groundhog opry during mud season. Who else? Well, you, uh, you you also pay ode to one of my uh, to several of my favorite comedians, uh, Kathleen Cans. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Tina Fremmel. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what captured your uh, your attention there with some of these other comedians? Uh, well, and- well, I think that we again it was trying to have it both ways, trying to have some sense of flow and development and history, and but also um, different kinds of humor, not just the. I mean, you still are forced to put it between pages and it has being two dimensional that way. But we wanted uh, we didn't think we were smart enough to carry a whole book. Maybe Hooper could alone, but not me. Um, And and so things have changed. And the whole notion of stand up and uh, um, comedy has ballooned in the last 20 years. And many of those practitioners are women. So we we thought that they should have uh, some. Uh, room on the stage as well. And, and uh, so we, we made selections as best we could and hope that they were um, representative and, and true to their art. Well, some of you, uh, you quote some of Kathleen Kahn's and, and Kathleen is a well-known uh, stand-up uh, comedian. She's also the uh, founder of the Green Mountain Comedy Festival in the, uh, in Burlington. Uh, she and I've seen her a number of times in person. Uh, some of her lines are, I think deja vu is nonsense. And it's not the first time I've thought that. Um, well delivered, David. <laughs> growing up in my little family, nobody was related. My sister and I were both adopted and my parents delightfully were not related. Huge win for the home team. And we're very <laughs> proud. Read the one, but a wonderful one about the the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, The Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. Boy, is that going to be a long line, but very easy to cut. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, When Tina Tina Primmel (laughs) talks about where she is in her life uh, timeline, she says, I'm 26. That's the oldest I've ever been. It's <laughs> Vermont humor. That's pretty good. <laughs> How have the, this modern era of comedians and actors like Rusty DeWeese and Tina Frimmel and others, um, how have they kind of bent the arc of Vermont humor? Oh, well, I, let, let, let me give you... Let, one, my favorite uh, joke from the early pages of this book, and that'll give you a chance to springboard off okay, of it. But fine. it's a, it's the uh, guy who's uh, walking around town. And he says uh, he's got a dog with him. He's a famous uh, vermin destroyer. And several merchants tried to buy the dog from from him without luck. Uh, How much do you want for him? Asked one of the town fathers. Fifty thousand dollars. That's my price, said Ira. Too rich for me, said the man. A few days later, the man uh, the man saw Ira, but without the dog this time, and he asked where he was. Ira says, sold it, proudly. <laughs> Holy cow, how much? My price, says Ira. Did you get cash? Well, 
not exactly, but I did get two $25,000 cats. Now that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so if you got, if you got time for one, me to read one more excerpt here, David. Sure. Okay. This is, this is Rusty Deweese. I mean, and you know, we got, he, we've got nothing but time, Bill. We're right. in the middle of a pandemic. We okay. can't go anywhere. So well, this is for everyone. I mean, th this is one of my favorite pieces. Um, and he's giving joke tips. Okay. So this, <laughs> everyone can learn from this. All right. So he's just laughing is curious. How, why, you, why does something you hear, read, think about, or see cause, cause your body to conjure up a laugh? I certainly don't know. That's not, that's fine. It's not my job to know. My job is to make folks laugh. That's why I think I'm often approached by random people who want to tell me a joke. Every now and then I'm thrilled someone comes up with a really good one. Most often the jokes folks tell fall flat. I'm not complaining. It's not their fault. And I'm not saying they aren't necessarily good at telling jokes. It may be I'm not easily amused, at least not by jokes. As a public service, the following are tips you can work on that might make your joke telling more effective. Don't start your joke by saying, here's one you'll like. <laughs> Don't approach the joke telly all proud as if you're about to whisper to them the cure for cancer. Know the joke you're telling cold. To say, oh, wait, I forgot how it goes is not acceptable. Remember, effective joke telling is serious business. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail applies here. Do not get up too close in the physical space of the person you're telling the joke to. Regardless of the space you've left between you and that person, you should have good smelling breath. <laughs> Do not telegraph the punchline. In other words, tell the story and let the joke work on its own. Do not discount your abilities. I heard this joke and it was funny. I'll tell it to you, but I'm not really very good at telling jokes. <laughs> Every time Pavarotti had a cold, he didn't hold up a sign that says, I know a song, it's a good one, I'll sing it for you, but I have a cold. <laughs> if you want to tell a joke, commit. Besides, making excuses put the attention on you, not where it should be, which is solely on the joke. You don't need to smile the whole time while telling the joke. In fact, don't smile at all, unless you're playing a character in the joke, and that character is a smiler. If you must tell a dirty joke, be sure your audience is game. I think dirty jokes are less funny, but it's all subjective. Vary the tempo of the line in the joke. Don't rush it. And don't end each line saying, you got it. So there's this dry fern talking to a cat. You got it? Hey, kitty. <laughs> well, hey, I'm going I'm to have to interrupt you and tell people because we're out of time. And oh. uh, we're bumping <laughs> up against it. So we're, we're going to save the punchline for the book. And Okay. Yeah, the yeah. book is I Could Hardly... 123. All right. I Could Hardly Keep From Laughing, and it's by Don Hooper and Bill Mayers. And I want to thank both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, thank you, David. David. It was great fun. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>